I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. If you've been following the Art of Manliness for a while, you know we're big fans of Theodore Roosevelt. The man embodied the strenuous life. He was a rancher, a soldier, a hunter, a statesman, and a practitioner of boxing and judo. But what many people don't know about Roosevelt was that he was also an accomplished man of letters. He wrote over 40 books himself and read thousands of others over the course of his lifetime. And as my guest on the show point out, TR's literary life was tightly interwoven with his mighty deeds. Today on the show, his Historians and husband and wife team Thomas Bailey and Catherine Joslin discuss their book, Theodore Roosevelt, A Literary Life. We discuss how Roosevelt began the writing habit as a seven-year-old boy and how he wrote one of America's greatest military histories when he was just 24 years old. We then discuss TR's great literary successes, including The Rough Riders, The Winning of the West, and African Game Trails. Thomas and Catherine share how Roosevelt's penchant for action influenced his writing and how his writing inspired him to take action and how John Wayne and Western movies wouldn't exist without TR's literary work. We then get into Roosevelt's reading habits, including his opinion on compiling lists of must-read books. You're going to gain new insights about one of America's larger-than-life characters listening to the show. After it's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash trwriter. Tom Bailey, Catherine Joslin, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. We're glad to be here. So you two collaborated on a intellectual biography of Teddy Roosevelt. There's been so many biographies written about him, but I, I love, I mean, you guys wrote this, this I mean, it's, it's a, a, a very thorough, long biography just about what he wrote and what he read. And one of the main takeaways I got from your book is that Roosevelt is often overlooked as one of the great American writers. Like, why do you think that has happened to him? He's written over four dozen books. And on top of that, he wrote all these magazine articles. Why, why has he been overlooked amongst American writers? I, I think it's overwhelmed by his political presence because he is that major figure of the 20th century. And I think, I think we're, we're thrilled and captivated by the sort of myth of him. And so that we have... It's not that his writing's been abandoned quite, but I think it's it's ripe for the picking for people now to go back and read him, especially people who admire him as much as your your listeners do. Okay, let's talk about you know when his writing career began. Like when did Roosevelt start showing a penchant for writing? Was it a very early age? Um, he started writing as soon as he could pick up a pencil. Uh, and he wrote, um, he wrote letters, he wrote journals. I worked on the early kid. I, I just, 
He's such a wonderful character right from the start. And when he would write letters, he'd write a different kind of letter to his father, a different one to his mother, a different one to his siblings. He then wrote these journals about what he was doing, and he wrote them almost like plays, and he'd give his siblings all that were characters in it. And you you don't even know quite who he was writing for. He was writing at seven and, and, and at nine, these very early ages. And so, you know, maybe he was writing for us. <laughs> and he... And he was he was fascinated by reading at the same time. The Roosevelt children were homeschooled, and they were given free reign of the library and free reign of the New York Public Library, and they simply read and read and read. They read classic novels. They read boys' stories. They read stories for little girls. They read everything. And he was completely fascinated by the world of language. And he always was, till the very, pretty much the very day he died. He was still writing and reading. I, I just want to add that as I, I was reading through his um, journals and such, they were reading things as children like the Maine Reed or, or John James Audubon and certainly Longfellow and uh, Sir Walter Scott and Dickens and such. But he was also reading with his sisters books like Harriet Beecher Stowe's Little Pussy Willow, where she talks about how we all want to grow up to be good girls. And Louisa May Alcott's An Old Fashioned Girl. So he, he grew up sort of without prejudice about writing. He, he read anything he could get his hands on, but always did all his life. I'm curious, did, do you think his reading as a young child influenced his, I don't know, his romantic view towards life later on that we would see in his speeches about, you know, he, he was a jingoist. He was all about, he glamorized war. He was all about the outdoors. Did his reading as a child influence that? Well, I think it probably did. He loved the novels of Sir Walter Scott, which are pretty intensely romantic. And his favorite boy, don't forget, was named Quentin for uh, Scott's novel, Quentin Durwood, right? Which is one of his most romantic and intensely romantic uh, medieval novels that was written in the middle of, of Scott's career. He, he, was, he adored that novel and he adored Quentin. So yeah, I suppose that his intense romanticism partly grows out of his reading, but it also grows out of his nationalism and it grows out of his intense love of the outdoors. And as a child, Tom, going back to this, you know, your interest in nature writing, like as a child, he started, he thought of himself as a natural historian and he was, he thought he was doing good work. Like he wrote about birds and animals in his area. Like his, his, his career as a naturalist began as an eight-year-old or nine-year-old. That's right. And I, I, I did the early kids, so I can jump in here. So uh, when he meant to be an ornithologist, and he was nearsighted, and the family didn't know it until he was 14. So he would go out and listen to bird song, and there are these wonderful descriptions where he's not very musical, but he tries to get the music right. And then he, he looks, he spends a lot of time, he's supposed to be a kind of manic kid, but he spends hours just observing and then writing intricate notes about the bird. And, of course, then he'd kill the bird and slit it open and, and he'd measure everything. But he meant to be a scientist. And when he went to Harvard, he had hoped to do that. But it, it didn't turn out that way. No, he, he found when he got to Harvard that under the influence of Louis Agassiz's 
the science at, at Harvard had become science of the laboratory, and he wanted to do science out in the woods. He, when he was a kid, he was extraordinarily patient, along with his hyperactivity, of course, and his sketches of the mice and the birds and the things that he saw in the natural world are really touching in their uh, kind of emotional intensity and their skill. He was quite a wonderful sketcher, right? Pretty much, we could say this for sure about Roosevelt in all of his guises. Whatever he turned his hand to, he did very well, right? And he turned his head to an awful lot of things, not just writing and drawing and reading, but all kinds of other things as well as you and your listeners well know. Sure. I'm curious, is there some place people can go online to like see his journals from when he was seven or nine years old? Well, what's interesting about working with uh, a figure like Theodore Roosevelt is everybody wants to read him. When we started to work, we were, uh, we were working at Harvard and we were working with things that weren't online. But now there's a Theodore Roosevelt Center. They're looking to put all of this stuff that we were looking at in a privileged way, is now in a democratic way available to to your listeners. That's right. And so you you can pretty much call up all of this, or not everything, but the childhood material is available. It's available at Harvard, too, but also at this Dickinson State site. Right. Well, it's not all digitalized yet, because there's way too much to digitalize very fast, right? <laughs> right? But it's coming online gradually, and it's coming online steadily, and it's a fully funded research program. And within probably a decade, all of his writings, well, all of them, the letters, the journals, the articles, everything, will be available online. And it will be, you know, it'll be a wonderful national treasure. So as a child, Roosevelt started writing journals, letters, sort of rudimentary scientific papers about natural history or the environment. What was Roosevelt's first big breakthrough as a professional writer? When did that happen? The breakthrough, the the really breakthrough book is The Rough Riders, and that comes later. But after he left college, he was studying for law, and he was working on two pieces of writing. One is a hunting story called South South Southerly. That's the name of the ducks that he was hunting. And they very nearly died in the hunt. And that, if he had developed that part of himself, that more creative part, he probably would be a very different writer today. But you can see elements of that writing as you move through his career. But then he got a hold of this naval war of 1812, and he wanted to be an historian. And remember that after he's president of the United States, he's president of the American Historical Association. So he wanted to be known as an historian. Uh, So he worked on this naval war, which was really about the battle between the United States and Britain in the Great Lakes. And then they wind up in Plattsburgh in this little arena on Lake Champlain. Champlain, And they just blow the guts out of each other. (laughs) So he tells that story. That's still an interesting story. In fact, the British liked it so well that they wanted their own story, and they wanted him to write the chapters about the Great Lakes. So it's still an interesting interesting book to read. It was well-reviewed. It was accepted. People, 
the reviewers of the New York Times and like newspapers were kind of astonished that this young man, he was 22 years old at the time, wow. uh, had written such a had written such a scholarly, mature, thoroughly researched book, <laughs> right? But uh, well, there's uh, there's Theodore Roosevelt for you. Right, right. right. The reason he wrote that book is because um, as a boy he had traveled with his daddy because they had real-life experiences, and that's what kids need to have. But he went to Plattsburgh once, and somebody gave him a cannonball from that battle in Lake Champlain, and, and it just uh, sparked his excitement about this uh, military adventure. And he, his, his, mother's, his mother was from the South and lived on a plantation, and her brothers were Confederate heroes, naval heroes, in the Civil War, and he then visited them. They were, of course, living in, after the war, they lived in Liverpool in England, and he would visit them and talk to them about the boats. He was just fascinated. Whatever he picked up fascinated him, but all of that stuff was poured into this book, which started his career as an historian. I'm curious, throughout all of his work, and you know, even beginning with the war, the naval battles of the War of 1812, like what was Roosevelt's guiding ethos when it came to writing? Like, did he have like a, an ethic or a, an aim he was shooting for with his writing? Yeah. Yeah. He meant to tell the truth mainly. Right. <laughs> yeah. He told the truth and he wanted the narrative of American history and American life to be presented as vividly as it could be presented, right? And he wanted that in politics, and he wanted that in art, and he wanted that in all public life. And one of the persons who was maybe most fascinated by him and in that notion of the national ethos was Walt Whitman, who, who said, you know, He's got a little bit of the dude, but he tells it like it is. It's good, right? Yeah, I like I like that stuff by Roosevelt. Yeah, yeah. That was another thing I thought was really fascinating about this time period. Oh, you know, was this you know sense of nationalism, not just politically, but like culturally, like um, like Roosevelt and even Whitman, and you know, you see it with Thoreau and Emerson. They they were really like they were very self conscious about we're trying to create American literature, American art that rivals European literature or European art. Like they had a chip on their shoulder. That's right. There is a kind of national defensiveness, you write about that. But what he thought, and he wrote about what the national literature should look like. He he wrote an essay like that. And he what he said about American writing is it ought to smack of the soil. Edith Wharton's novel, her first novel was a historical novel about Italy. He wrote to her and said, no, you know, write about New York. We want to write, we want to create our own writers here. And he was part of the American Academy of Arts and Letters, which is part of that whole movement, as you say, to sort of give ourselves a national art and a national voice. And he was voted into that group, that very intimate group, in the second round in 1905, along with Henry James and Henry Adams. And And the people who voted for him were people like Mark Twain. And they meant, they really meant to build, he said, you know, you can study literatures and ideas from other places, he sounds like Emerson in this way, but that doesn't mean that we have ideas here. So we, he was full-throated 
in his notion that we should have a national literature. Right, as he wanted to see himself, he wanted to define himself kind of as an American-American. That's right. Right. I mean, he really really was intent on the national voice and the national experience. And another sort of ethic that you you highlight throughout the book, I love this line. I'm going to read it here. It's from his autobiography about, you know, his writing. He said, "I, I have always had a horror of words that are not translated into deeds, of speech that does not result in action. In other words, I believe in realizable ideals and in realizing them, in preaching what can be practiced and then in practicing it. That's that's really at the heart of what he thinks about language. I think that's true. And that's in American Ideals. That first book of essays, the second book of essays that he writes when he's fairly young, and even later in his life, he says, go back and read that. Those are the words that matter to me. And that's interesting how that goes both ways. You know, you can take language and turn it into action, but then you can take action after you've taken the action and go back into language with it, and it becomes his books, right? And then his books become the source for law, which is a different kind of language and a different kind of bringing action into language, which then shapes subsequent action. So, I mean, he... He sees this as a kind of ongoing continuum, right? That it moves back and forth. And then you read and you get new ideas and you consult with writers. You consult with John Burroughs. You consult with John Muir and you come up with the idea for Yellowstone Park and Yosemite Park and the idea of the national preservation and conservation of of land, right? But that starts in language and it starts in idea and then it comes back into law and then you make it real. It's he's a he's always not content just to think about things but to do things. And I'm sure we're going to I'm sure we're going to get to the man in the arena. For sure. But, but I mean, it sounds like, I mean, he, I was going to say like, you know, he did all these, you know, larger than life things, big hunts, he fought in Cuba. Um, so I was reading, it's like, I wonder if like he did those things so he could have something to write about. Well, that, right? like, that's an interesting question. No, I don't think he got up in the morning and thought, well, I'll go out on a hunt because I can write about it later. I think that's the whole point is that uh, that action and writing come together. He went on the hunt. Well, those first hunts he went to in Dakota was because he came home one day and his wife and his mother on a Valentine's Day died of separate things and utterly by surprise. And he was he had to restore himself. And he went to his ranch in Dakota and started killing animals and trying to deal, I think, with the specter of death. And those and from that he started to write. And he said, well, you know, I'll have plenty of time writing out here. And it was a way of sort of mending himself. Um, and so there's this relationship always between... I, I don't think he meant to go out there to write, no. But once he got there, he took he took the pen with him and the pad, and he did what he always did as a child. He continued to write about the adventure. And then, of course, he got better and better at that, so that by, the, by the time he went to Cuba, he could come back in that very militaristic and full-throated way and become a hero and so overwhelm people that he, they make him the governor of New York. And, but 
Well, and by the time he goes to Africa and then later to Brazil, he's invented for himself a much more daring kind of uh, literary form, which is to think, to write about it as it's happening. He'd go out and hunt all day long or work or explore all day long. And when everybody else came home exhausted at night, he'd set up his desk and his lamp and he'd write about what happened that day and send it to the publisher without really any editing. And the publisher would strike it into short stories and publish them in Scribner's. Both, both books were published as in Scribner's magazine. And then the chapters were collected into a book. And that's a very risky kind of uh, literary form. Almost all writers like to look over what they've written before they publish it. You know? But not when you're as confident as Roosevelt. You're just like, uh, yes. Well, and, that idea of being confident and confident in the first draft, it probably comes from the fact that, you know, he started writing as a child and he was always comfortable in language. But it, you can look at manuscripts. and They're wonderful to look at. He, he would come in. And he he had pretty much the whole story in his in his head, and he would run down the page very quickly, and then he'd go back and look at it, <laughs> and if he had anything else, if there's anything he wanted to do, sometimes he would improve on a verb or something, but then he would do these balloons where he'd put more and more information in, so he always added to what he had to say. <laughs> um, but there is a confidence in a writer that maybe you get from having written every day. I think there's no doubt about that. You know, he's he is sure of his own chops, right? Right. I don't think right. he was. I, he was sure of his own chops in all of his aspects of his life. You know, he. I don't think he ever thought he was wrong once ever. No. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I mean, he was he was self assured and self assertive in a way that really smacks of the 19th century. I don't think males in the 21st century get to have that sense of assurance anymore, right? No, definitely. I'm curious the way, you know, the way he approached writing, sort of this first-person account, sort of mixing observation and history. Did, did, Did Roosevelt, in a way, fashion a new form of writing that influenced how other Americans wrote? Like, did he have an influence on the literary scene, is guess what I'm asking? Well, he knew writers, of course, and worked with writers all the time. But one of the things, the contributions I think you could talk about, he meant to write a kind of epic of the West. And so he and he wanted to do something where he put faunal nature together with hunting, and, and he wanted to um, tell the story of what was going on in the West. And his friend, a really close friend, was Owen Wister, who wrote The Virginian. And another was Frederick Remington. And if you put Frederick Remington's uh, sculptures together with Owen Wister's novel, together with those stories about faunal nature and hunting, you'd, you, you could say that in that bundle, you really have the notion of how we talk about the West. The Western comes out. I, I think he's influential in that way. Yeah. And and, you know, what you end up with with Louis L'Amour is a kind of washed out Western vision, you know, that uh, popularized and really ro- over romantic. Roosevelt would have been uh, bemused, probably amused by 
you know, the contemporary Western novel, the Louis L'Amour kind of thing. But no, he was at the heart of the invention of the West, our, our concept of the West, including the movies, I think, probably. Wow, so without Roosevelt, we wouldn't have John Wayne. <laughs> Maybe. You know what? You're right. Wonderful. <laughs> My mother would like that line. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what he would think of, you know, like my favorite Western novel is Lonesome Dove. I think he and Larry McMurtry would have oh, hit it off yeah, almost yeah. instantly, don't you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that was one of Roosevelt's most endearing habits. He'd get into a book and he'd say, I like this book and I like this author. And he'd sit down and he'd write him and he'd invite him to dinner and then he'd quarter him and they would just talk, right? Okay. Yeah, he'd have had Larry McMurtry to the White House over and over <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's talk. We've talked a lot about his his writing life. Um, well, before we move on to his reading life, what was Roosevelt's most popular book? And and do, I mean, that's how he. And a lot of people don't realize is that's how he made his living. Like that's how he supported his family. Even though he came from wealth, he lost a lot of it in the Dakotas on the ranch. So he had to write to feed his family and give him a comfortable life. That's right. And remember, he's a writer before he's a politician, and he's a writer after he's a politician. And it is his. Uh, it is his sort of business to be a writer. And do we do we know like how much he made as a writer? And it's really tricky to know. His finances were hidden, almost hidden. Yeah, he wasn't good with money. He was good negotiating a contract up front, but he turned all the money over to Edith. She was a Victorian lady, and you can see. At Sagamore Hill, you can see the budgets that she kept, and they're all budgets of expenses and not budgets of income. So she kept that hidden, and he was he was quiet about it too. Apparently, and this is hard to get at, and you kind of have to get at it indirectly and by implication rather than explicitly, the sales of Rough, Rough Riders were so extensive and so successful that it reestablished him as a and the Roosevelt family as a wealthy family. It was estimated in one article that I found in the in the Washington Post from 1901 that he had made $400,000 off of the Rough Riders, which in 1901 was a, just a huge sum of money. Right, so he restored his fortune, and he always was scrupulous about making money. He wanted to be paid for his work. Uh, uh, he wrote three books while he was governor of New York. He said, "Once I get this office in the groove, I'll give you uh, the books." He said to his editors, but they were living off the money that he was making as a writer at that time. So, Rose, so Rough Riders, his his story of his you know charging San Juan Hill in Cuba, that was his most popular book. Uh, yeah, that very was popular. popular. Yeah, that was still a bestseller is, yeah. for sure. It still is. Yeah. Right? It's fun to read. No, yeah, and then after that, I mean, I guess it was what would be like the second one? Would it be his African hunting book or the story about the River of Doubt? No, it was the African hunting book. The story of the of his you know the travels through the Brazilian wilderness didn't sell nearly as it wasn't disappointing exactly, but it didn't sell as much as he had hoped, right? Because he was out of the public sight and he had sort of disappointed people by you know running on the 
on the bulb. On the bulb. It was a ticket, right? And while the sales were robust, they weren't anything like the sales of the African book. So the two best sellers would have been, yes, uh, the Rough Riders and Travels Through Africa. But in terms of the retrieval work that we're interested in doing, I think going back and reading those uh, ranch stories, Ranch Life and the Hunting Trail, is rather wonderful uh, from 1888. Or um, if you wanted to know about his politics and really understand him, he would say you should read American Ideals, which comes in 1897, a collection of uh, essays and speeches. And then, of course, The Rough Riders. But I think many people read his autobiography, and we would say that the place to start in the autobiography, because he was so, uh, he was so uh, sort of crabby by that time, was after he had lost at bull uh, at the bull moose, and as he was uh, angry about the resistance of Americans to be involved in World War One. But in his autobiography, there's a chapter called Indoors and Outdoors, which is just marvelous to read. And of course, we're literate. We're literature people, and there's a he has a book called History as Literature, and it's that essay about history as literature that I think is also quite good. And then, uh, Tom, you would add what uh, you think through the Brazilian wilderness, right? I think maybe through the Brazilian wilderness is the is the uh, is a compelling read. And then, when he was an old man in 1916, he published one last kind of nature book, book of essays, a kind of gathering of of writing that he had done before, and he had done some later. And he, it's called. It has a really wonderful title. It's called A Book Lover's Holiday in the Open. 1916. And his introduction to that collection of essays is one of his really touching late pieces of writing, right? He even, that's even, very much worth going back to read. He even goes back and judges himself as a young man and uh, trying to be a scientist and such. And he sort of gives him a drubbing for not being any better than he was. <laughs> like that's a strange thing of the old man passing judgment on the young man. Wonderful. So we've talked a lot about his writing life, but besides being just a prolific writer, Roosevelt was, as you said, even as a child, a voracious reader. Do we know how many books Roosevelt read in a given week? And did he have any preferences on what he read? Well, first of all, no preferences. He would read anything. And uh, one of the charming things about him when he was in the White House was that he used the library, the librarian of the Library of Congress as his personal librarian. And he would write him a letter and he'd say, send me 10 books on Hungarian history and I want to know something about the Irish Celtic myths and I want to know about the Ring of the Nibelungen. I want to know this, I want to know that. Send me a stack of books. The guy would send him a stack of books. He'd read them, he'd send them back and say, send me another, right? He read, by some estimates, 300 books a year. What's interesting, I think, about Roosevelt's reading is it's part of the myth of Roosevelt that he always read fast. Uh, he certainly didn't want to be disturbed when he was reading. But he read, we're, we discovered reading more closely in his letters and such, he read at different speeds. So he read some things slowly and savored them. He would sit with his wife in the evening and they'd read aloud from books that they liked maybe from Vanity Fair or something like that, Thackeray. And they'd read just the, they'd maybe just read the chapters that they liked or just the conversations, the way 
you might listen to music, where you listen to parts of it and things that you, you enjoy. He liked poets, but he, um, he read certain poems and over and over again, so that his reading was much more various and much more like, a, you know, the lives we all lead, I suppose, in, in that there wasn't any kind of standard way to talk about him as a reader. And, and he wasn't picky at all. No, he, 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 he loved certain classical writers. He loved Greek, he loved Greek writers. He didn't much like Shakespeare. No. Uh, he, he didn't like Hamlet. He oh. thought that Hamlet was a kind of a disgusting character. Right? <laughs> well, and that makes sense, doesn't it? Right. And, and, and he used to joke that when he finished Jane Austen, he thought he had done something good for his soul. Well, another thing that impressed me about him is like he like read magazines that were you know sometimes people like trashy magazines of the time, and I, I like how I, I loved how you described how you read them. Like he would hold them and he just tear the pages out and throw them on the floor when he was done reading it. So if he was waiting for the train, this is what people say about him, he'd just go up to the magazine rack, and he didn't look through to see which ones he was going to do and always read the same thing. He bought all of them. And then he'd sit there while he was waiting, and he was bored. He would tear the pages out of newspapers, too, because those were ephemeral. If your writing was in a newspaper or a magazine, it wasn't meant to last. And so you'd see those the pages sort of uh, underneath his feet when he got done. But... The reason he wanted his articles to go from magazines to books is that books are then treated in an entirely different way. And so that, that's where the permanence in writing comes. But he'd get really mad and he'd, he'd write to them. He was irritated with the Gibson girl because what were women doing wanting to ride bicycles and not have babies? He thought they should have five babies. I mean, he'd get really, really concerned about uh, so all the aspects of life. And going back to this idea that he had no preferences about reading, I think he's a few times in his career people would ask him, like, what's, you know, give us a reading list, right? And he would basically say, just read what you want. Like, I don't have any yeah, preferences. Right, yeah, and, and the president of Harvard, Charles Elliott Norton, had his five-foot bookshelf, right? Right, with, with the classics right. and whatnot and lined up. And if you read these, you'd be a well-educated man. And somebody asked Roosevelt about that. And man, did he tee off on that one. <laughs> he said, that's a ridiculous idea. You can't possibly prescribe to anybody how you read because reading is contingent. You start here and then you think, oh, that's an interesting time in history. I want to read more. And you go there and then you branch off into the poetry and then you see what was happening in Spain at the same time. And then maybe you skip over to Hungary and try to find that out too. You know, you just read. The idea of formula, that you could have an education by formula, Edith Wharton found that, you know, just an appalling idea as well. But what, an education is, doesn't come in a course, and it doesn't come in a course pack, and it doesn't come in a, a reading list. An education comes over the course of your life, that you travel and talk with people, and you read, and you write, and you're engaged with living, that that's what education is. And that's certainly what education was to... Theodore Roosevelt, you know, who was an enormously well-educated man, conversing. He could speak in Spanish. He could speak in French. He, he didn't think his French was very good. He didn't have very good. He didn't have very good Greek, but he had pretty good Latin. He could speak German. 
Right. I mean, he was he was broadly and deeply educated. I'm curious, how did Roosevelt's reading influence his thinking about, let's say, public policy? Did that have an influence? Okay, so um, so when he's reading, and this goes back to that whole idea of words into action and actions into deeds and such. But when he was police commissioner in New York, he met uh, Jacob Rees, who had written How the Other Half Lives. And then they traveled through the slums to see what was going on. And uh, then from that reading and from knowing Jacob Rees, he later thought of him. They thought of each other as almost family. They so adored each other. Uh, But then when he became governor of New York, he knew about the child labor, about the safety of women in the workplace, the safety of the workplace, the limited hours of work. Uh, He was even interested, well, he got interested in sort of purity in foods. He thought you shouldn't say something on a label that wasn't in a food. And then later when he was president and Upton Sinclair had written The Jungle, he worked with the publisher. Everybody was trying to get that sort of that text into line because there were so many outrageous things uh, that the president thought was that were in the book. But then he worked to pass the Pure Food and Drug Act so that he really, when he had these sort of, say, more imaginative pieces that he was reading, he could see how uh, the social betterment that could come from it. And then he did work, in fact, to turn those kinds of ideas into law. His ideas about government came from his fellow politicians more than they came from his reading, right? Because he had the ideas. But he did consult with his political advisors and his political friends. And he'd say, I'm going to give this speech, and I'm going to give it in Pottawatomie, Kansas, and I want you to go through Ossawatomie. Ossawatomie, I'm sorry. (laughs) Pottawatomie is in Kalamazoo. Those are the Indians we've got here. uh, I'm going to give this. Please, you know, take this part of the speech and rewrite it and put the stuff in there, put the ideas in you think that I'm leaving out or prove them, right? And then give it back to me. And then he would take this document and he would very carefully rewrite it and then hand it over to his his secretary and she would, he, whoever it was, would type it up, right? And then he would read it and he pretty much stuck to his texts when he was giving a speech. The Asawatomi speech it can be read. It's a wonderful long. speech. Right. By the time he collected these ideas together, and, and he ran in the Bull Moose as the Bull Moose candidate and the Progressive uh, candidate third party in 1912, he had this packet of uh, speech, this very long speech that he had all folded up in his pocket. And people probably know the story, but his glasses case was also in the pocket. So that when he was shot by a would-be assassin in Milwaukee, the bullet lodged in his chest, but it didn't kill him. And it could be that that long speech, it, it may in fact have saved his life. And that's one of the primary, of course, your, your listeners know this, but it's worth repeating. That speech in Milwaukee is one of the primary examples of manliness on DR's oh, part, yeah, right? right? I mean... There, there was the speech. He unfolded it. He got up on the podium and he read it yeah. for 45 minutes. It was going to last another 45 minutes, but fainted, he yeah, was yeah. fainting. <laughs> he was fighting from loss of blood. And yeah. they took him and they put him in the hospital. Yeah. 
very right. much against his will. His wife was <laughs> so they, angry. Right. Yeah, right. Oh, he was. But he checked his mouth to see if there was blood there, and he thought, if there was blood there, I'll die right here. And he didn't mind dying in a kind of battle that was heroic for him. But when he didn't see the blood, he decided he'd go and give the speech. And it was perfect for him. He just <laughs> he loved the crowd, and here he was with a bullet in his chest. Right. No, it's awesome. It, it, is, awesome. Awesome. it is awesome. No, it is and you know awesome. what? You know, it's like with so many things with Roosevelt, there's another side to that, which is virtually foolhardy, right? <laughs> that he didn't go to take himself right straight to the doctor right. and, and get, you know, and get plugged up or something, right? Uh-huh. But, you know, if he had done that, he wouldn't be nearly as interesting a human being to us as he is. And even as he was dying in 1919, he was planning to run for president in 1920. So yeah, he never he never stopped. He was always trying to turn words into action. No, yeah. no, he never stopped. That's, that's no, and that's one of the most compelling and astounding things about him is his absolute insistence on plunging into the future. You know, I mean, he's he just simply goes ahead, and he goes ahead at high speed. He's, it's, it, it's a remarkable thing about him as you read his life and think about it, you know, how, how profoundly energetic he was and how profoundly committed to the future of the country and of himself and of his family. You know, it uh, doesn't matter where you are in the political spectrum, uh, I read this study recently that he's the he's considered the number four president in uh, in quality and in importance. If you're a Republican, if you're a Democrat, or if you're an Independent, across the uh, across the way. Yeah. Right. So he, he kind of embodied that you know, sort of ideal of America that I think a lot of people have: energetic, forward-thinking, bold adventurous, et cetera. And I think he's a figure that I say he's ripe for retrieval right now because I, I, I think we live in a world where we want to be, no matter who we are, we want to find this, this kind of model in history. Uh, what we have for him, and we don't have for other presidents, is we have what well, we count it as four dozen books, but 42 that he wrote on his own. And we can go back and uh, and have this uh, much closer relationship with him through language. Well, this has been a great conversation. I'm curious, where can, is there someplace people go to learn more about your work and the book? Or should they just go to Amazon or their local bookstore to go pick up a copy? Well, we are going to make the suggestion that they go to their local library okay. and, ask them to, and ask them to order the book if they've not done it. And we believe very much in the local bookstore. Uh, we just had a book launch at a bookstore in Kalamazoo. And I think that bookstores are back in fashion again. And we are at Barnes & Noble also. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, at, at Amazon. And uh, we're not hard to find. You can Google us. You can Google us and we pop right up, right? But if you right. want, if, you know, if, some, if people are interested in buying the book, we, we really support our, you know, the, the the burgeoning market at local bookstores, <laughs> uh, right? Which is very exciting. I'm sure you no, have it is Tulsa too, right? <laughs> no, yeah. One just opened up, uh, oh, yeah, Magic City nice. Books. Yeah, terrific. And, right. so. and the beauty of going to the local place, the library and the bookstore, of course, is that you can get our book and then you can look around and you can find so many other things that interest you. Right. What's great about our bookstore, it was started by the like nonprofit reading foundation here in Tulsa, Book Smart Tulsa, which is very Roosevelt, you know, like Roosevelt would approve, yeah. right? He, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's cool. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Tom, Catherine, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. A wonderful conversation. Thank, Thank you, you, Brett. So much, We've enjoyed Brett. it so much. This is wonderful. Thank you. My guests today were Thomas Bailey and Catherine Joslin. They're the authors of the book, Theodore Roosevelt, A Literary Life. It's available on Amazon.com. Or as they recommended, go check out your public library. Recommend they pick it up or check out your local bookstore. Also, you can find out our show notes at aom.is slash trwriter, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you're interested in living TR's strenuous life, or at least something like it, check out our program, The Strenuous Life. It's at strenuouslife.co. You can sign up for updates when we open up enrollment. It's pretty cool. We basically try to help you take action on things we've been writing about in the Art of Manliness for the past 10 years. So go check it out, strenuouslife.co. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? you left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.